Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and even after 100 episodes, less ukulele. I'm going to do something about that. You've been threatening for about 80 episodes. <laughs> I'm just giving you time to get used to it. Well, in this episode, as I just mentioned, this is episode 100 of the Brew Files. We've been doing this for four years now, and we've gotten 100 of these bad boys under our belts. It's almost time to know what we're doing. Never. <laughs> yeah, never. And so we figured it would be a good idea during this 100th episode to actually go and stop and take a look back at things that we've noticed that have changed, things that we've changed ourselves, and, you know, really what's happened in the brew world in 100 episodes of this little show. But before we get into that, please listen to these messages from the people who make the show possible. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, a group of more than 40,000 individuals from more than 70 countries who share a passion for brewing and enjoying great beer. Learn more at homebrewersassociation.org. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Well, and the reason that the show exists, remember, is that way back in the day when we were talking about, you know, the, the main show, we kept dropping all these brewing topics on the floor because we just couldn't cover it in the middle of a two hour talk every two weeks. And so that's the reason why we're now on episode 100 of the Brew Files. I think it's because you were drinking too much. Yeah. Six of one, half dozen the other. That's right. What's yeah. the difference? <laughs> but it's actually taken us four years to get here. So the first episode was released on January 11th, 2017. We should have been here last year at some point, but things happened. <laughs> yeah, we kind of uh, went to a new and uh, loose schedule. Hopefully now we're tightening it back up. But, uh, dear listeners, uh, thank you for sticking with us for 100 episodes of The Brew Files, plus another 130 episodes of The Main Show. That's 230 episodes of us yabbering at you just about beer. Well, and so what we figured we would do this 100th episode is actually take a look back at some of the things that we think have changed in the world of homebrewing since we started doing this particular show. And remember, the whole idea of this show has always been sort of a tighter, more focused, more one single topic type thing, get us a little bit more in depth on a particular subject. And we hope that you've enjoyed some of these episodes. I think the one that has been downloaded the most are either the ones about New England IPA or the one about triple IPA. This might say something <laughs> about the listenership. I was going to say we're more focused except for when I'm on. 
Yeah, we're more focused except for when I'm talking. Um, <laughs> and on this particular episode, we're going to actually walk through a couple of different areas where we want to talk about changes that have happened. And since this is beard making that we're talking about, it just seems to make sense to me that we've structured this around the four major ingredients. Yeah, well, three major ingredients and uh, something and and stuff. Well, no, four major ingredients: malt, water, hops, yeast. Oh, how about that? You use yeast? I know, right? That might explain something about my beer. Yeah, that's right. All right, and so let's dive into the whole malt thing because I know this is a hop-based world that we live in, and malt is just part of the story, but. We've been trying to give malt, I think, a little bit more of its due, and I think there are some things that have been happening in the world of malt that are actually fairly exciting. I think the biggest example of that you can see is in the world of craft malt. Now, it's no surprise that Denny and I both really love the malts that we get from Mechagrade. Seth is a good friend of ours and is doing some very creative stuff. You may remember we had all the talk about, you know, different cross strains and different cross breedings and this, you know, Maris Otter mixed with Violetta and wait, is it the father or the mother is, you know, this, that, and the other. And remember when we started the show, there were craft maltsters out there. There were people like Andrea Stanley out in Massachusetts with Valley Malt, but it wasn't really so well established and so spread. And I think from the time that we started the show, now we're seeing scads. When we talked to Jesse Bussard, the executive director of the Craft Maltsters Guild, didn't she say that there are like 160 craft maltsters in the U.S. now? Yeah, which is insane. It, yeah, really. I mean, that's that's more than three per state. Just off the top of my head, the ones that that I know that we've tried, obviously Mechagrade, uh, Root Shoot, you know, the, they make some really great malt, uh, Skagit Valley Malt, Epiphany Malt. Uh, Sugar Creek is a new one that, that people have been talking about recently and I need to get my hands on. You know, yeah, there's I just, agree. there's all these different options now for something that is so fundamentally based to the beer and it's kind of fun. Oh my God. Oh, don't make me do that. I, 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 I really enjoyed the root shoot stuff because it is really clean and flavorful. Uh, I really like, uh, what Seth is doing at Mecha Grade because, uh, the, the full pint variety of barley that he uses has some real interesting characters of its own. Skagit is great. Gold Rush. I mean, you know, I've been, I've used Gold Rush malts from uh, here in Oregon. And uh, as Jesse pointed out, they won first place for both Pale and Pilsner malt in the latest malt cup. So I'm not going to pick a favorite, but there's a few that I think are really good and why I like them. Well, I think you hit on one thing that is very, very important is that if nothing else, the fact that these are different varieties of barley and different producers doing different things. You know, I, I don't think any of these, you know, smaller craft maltsters have anywhere near the same level of technical control and sophistication that you find at, say, like a Brees or a RAR or, you know, Great Western, you know, like one of the big guys. Their products are give a lot of interesting characters to them. And they become actually really, in my mind, a good star vehicle for a lot of these beers. It's almost like the the maltster. I mean, each malt house gives the malt its own personality that is really distinct from uh, other ones. Yep, yeah, its own little thumbprint. I think. <laughs> there you go, a malt thumbprint. Okay, I didn't know not? barley had thumbs, but now I do, huh? And ears. <laughs> no, corn has ears. 
hey, this is my story. Stop okay, trying to ruin sorry. your facts. All right. Also, even in the world of money, even though we're talking about all these craft monsters and all these different characters that you're getting out of them, we're even seeing like the big guys getting into doing this too, right? And so I think one of the big ones in doing the happy hours that I've been doing here in Los Angeles, the Wireman Barca pills, you know, their heritage malt. I remember I was first talking about that on the main show when that first started to appear. That's a, a heritage Pilsner malt that they brought back up. That I see all over the place here in Los Angeles with people making lager beers, which, by the way, is also another trend that's happened in the last five years. Yay. The rise of the craft lager. But these lager beers, a lot of them, they're basing around Barca Pills because they want a bigger, bolder, more full-flavored malt. Have you have you played around with the Bar- Barca or had any of the beers made with Barca? Yeah, when it uh, when it was just hitting the market, uh, I I guess it was Northern Brewer sent me a sample of it. Uh, I I thought it was very interesting. It had a lot more character than their normal pills. Uh, I often get kind of a grassy character out of Vireman pills that uh, is not a real favorite of mine, and I didn't get that from the Barca. Uh, I like it a lot, but. On the other hand, I like the Mecha Grade Pelton a lot, too. And it's just like you were saying, man. You know, they're different malts. They each have their own characteristic flavors. And I thought it was funny that even last, what, last episode, two episodes ago, we, we talked about Baird's introducing Malt 2.0, which I, it, whenever I read Malt 2.0, it just sounds like that in my head. Malt 2.0. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a software update, huh? Yeah. But to me seeing even like the the bigger monsters getting into this game and i mean look great western they have their innovation group which is uh, run in part with uh, terry ferendorf there uh and they're they're pushing out new types of malt as well so even the big guys are are playing around trying to introduce new flavors trying to make new things happen yeah well and now uh, they're doing that biscuit rye too which mm-hmm. i haven't had a chance to use but again just from a, a creative standpoint sounds really interesting next up Denny Khan's Biscuit Rye IPA. <laughs> All right. Anything else about malt, Denny? Uh, there's lots of malt, but we don't want to make the whole show about that. So let's talk hops. This is obviously where I think a lot of our listeners and a lot of American craft brew drinkers and American home brewers place a lot of their love and their creativity is in the world of hops. And that's very easy to see. Or it's very easy to see it being fueled by the fact that I swear every time I turn around and I go look at the Yakima Chief website or Yakima Valley Hops or any of these hop suppliers, suddenly there's a new variety of hop. Even coming from Germany, we're seeing a lot of new varieties that are really, it it seems, destined more for things like like IPA than for some of the traditional uh, continental beers that, uh, that you would think they would be growing them for. Yeah, it is interesting because I mean, we are seeing those German hops with like tropical fruit characters, which if you had told me five years ago that you're going to start seeing those, I think, I think Huel Melon had broken into the market by that point. Yeah. Probably, probably the Mandarina Bavaria too. Yeah, Mandarina. But, but if you had told me that there suddenly there was going to be a whole flight of these German hops that were all about expressing fruitiness, I would have been very, very puzzled. Even out of uh, Slovenia, we have a whole new line. I mean, I've used Styrian Goldings for years, right? Steering Goldings, a nice standby hop, you know, good for all your continental styles. Use it all the time when I make a Saison, right? But if you'd told me that suddenly we were going to have things like Styrian Dragon and, I mean, Styrian Wolf, and like there are all these really great new Slovenian hop names, <laughs> and I want to play around with those hops, I haven't got my hands on them yet. It is interesting to see because I think 
we are seeing so many new varieties being developed and listeners will recall the time to bring a hop to market, like from first shoot to the time that you can actually go hand it to a brewer to put in a kettle. And that's a decade's worth of work. Yeah, exactly. And a ton of money, millions and millions of bucks just to bring one variety to market. I think we we had told you guys about this when we did uh, Yakima Chief's Hop and Brew School two years ago. You know, one of the things that we got to do was go walk around the experimental field. They have like a giant field that it is literally nothing but what about 10,000, I think it was like 10,000 different experimental plants, just yeah, single vines. Like that. Yeah. Each of these vines is something different. And 99.9% of those vines are going to basically end up the compost heap. <laughs> what I thought too was interesting was that they were talking about what qualities it takes to make a hop. And it's not just flavor and aroma, but a, even cone shape and size matters to whether a hop will make it to market because that has a bearing on uh, how it's going to be to pick and process those hops. So, well, and yield and, and susceptibility and. Right. Again, it's not just as easy as, oh, that hop makes a good beer. And I think that actually is kind of important, I think, because of the rise of people's love of all these new and different hop varieties, people are being exposed more to, say, the experimental series and learning more about how the hops come come to be. But five, five six years ago, we wouldn't have seen HPC 692. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that would have been like... You, you read my mind. That was one I was just thinking of, because who's ever... Whoever would have thought that a, a combination of, of cedar and, and lime and coconut and all those kinds of things would be something that people would be looking for in their beers. But as IPAs have exploded and more and more people are looking for ways to differentiate themselves, hops that have a broader flavor palette to them are getting a lot more notice than they might have before. Well, and again, people are now actually having to figure out and remember uh, wait, HP six, uh, HPC six, nine, two. How is that different than HPC three, two, four, whatever? Yeah. T- take your pick of your numbers. Uh, I find the whole numbering system very confusing, but uh, five, six years ago, we weren't talking about that. Not at least not in any sort of big way. I mean, those were mythical things kind of hiding out in the background, but for the most part at our level of brewing, we weren't exposed to those hops until they had a name like Talus and you know, which was six, nine, two. In fact, I think even in the professional brewing world, the only people who saw it, like the really experimental hops, were either people in Yakima or like Vinny at Russian River, you know, getting getting his hands on Sabro when it was brand new to play with and and tell them, hey, this is what I think about this. So to me, it's really interesting that not only are we seeing like this very large increase in the number of hop varieties that are being offered, but we're also getting exposed to them earlier in the process. And the other thing that's interesting is that uh, people have really started taking notice of the effect of terroir on hops, too. And the example we always use is uh, Chinook grown in Michigan as opposed to Chinook grown in the Pacific Northwest. Huge, huge difference. But people are, are actually starting to look at that more and more, how the same variety grown in different locations can give you completely different results in those hops. 
Right. And so terroir is one of the, the things that people are focusing on. I love that study from uh, DeProof about uh, Amarillo grown in Germany versus Amarillo grown in Idaho versus uh, Oregon or sorry, Washington. Right. right. And, you know, talking about that. And even uh, the other day, there was a talk about the differences in Idaho seven grown in uh, Idaho versus Washington versus Oregon. And they were actually praising the fact that Idaho seven seems to be r- relatively neutral in terroir ter- ter- characteristics. Oh, that's interesting. But we're also seeing some other things like Cascade used to be the dominant hop of the American brewing industry or the craft brewing industry. And now almost all of that's been replaced by Citra. It's like so much Citra growing out there that it's ridiculous. There's still a ton of Cascade, though. I mean, you know, it's it's right up there. Oh, I know. But I mean, it's like Citra shot by it and just went, hi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it is the most grown uh sort of craft brew hop, shall we say, um, which is also reflected in the fact that every IPA these days seems to be somehow required by federal law to have a combination of Citra, Mosaic, and Galaxy, or maybe Simcoe in it. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's why people are getting bored with IPAs. Yeah, I'll, I'll believe people being bored with IPAs when I see the IRI numbers drop. The other thing that we've also seen is different types so an expansion in ways of people actually being able to use their hops. So a good example of that is the one that we always talk about, the cryo, right? Cryo packaging. That's that's a new technology out there. Again, with the focus of trying to get all the, you know, all the oil and very little of the bract. You know, so you either got cryo from YCH or uh, Lupamax from YVH, for instance. You're also seeing things like hop extracts and hop extracts with named varieties for bittering available at the homebrew level of all places. I Just the other day, I was seeing somebody uh, advertising Amarillo extract. I'm going, wow, that's really nice. Great idea. And then we're also seeing on the flip side of that cry on the extract idea. And it's still frustrating that, that they're not as widespread, but the, the American nobles, the debittered hops, you know, the other, the other half of the cryo stuff, uh, because I actually really like it for doing, you know, sort of more European or continental style beers, but it is, Interesting. We're going to see more things happening. Obviously, people have been playing around with hop terpenes in the last couple of years. You're starting to see sort of liquid hop products uh, being developed by Barth Haas, for instance. Hops are, are sort of the big driver right now and the types and the ways that people are using them. It's actually really interesting to see, you know, what exactly is being done. Trying to find more ways to shove hop oils into more places. And I really think that in a lot of ways, that's... Uh driven by a lot of the research that has gone on into the characters of hops. Uh, you know, when you see like spider graphs of the flavors and stuff like that, the more information you get when you research hops, uh, the more ways you think about using them and, and maybe using them more effectively. Uh, the, the MIBU theory that has uh, really kind of started coming on heavy recently uh, is one with one of those things, right? The, the more you know about how the bittering character of those hops is going to come out in different situations, the easier it is to use those hops in different situations. Right. And it's also, we're seeing some of the sort of the inadequacies of how we think about hops in terms of, you know, IBU expression. And okay, so IBU captures this one aspect, but doesn't capture any of the stuff that happens with the, the phenols or the, the polyphenols or other compounds or what happens with the whirlpool hops, et cetera. So that's a place where we're starting to see some of that movement, as you said, with the MIBU formula. And I suspect we're going to see more of that. 
particularly because the ways in which we've used hops have changed a lot. I think even in the past five years, you know, where for instance, more and more I'm seeing fewer uh, boil hops. So fewer additions of like 60 minute type type of hops where the, a lot of IPA makers, for instance, shifting down to almost no kettle hops or, or as few kettle hops as they, as they feel reasonable to, to use seeing things where we're seeing a lot more whirlpool, whirlpool hopping. We're seeing it at lower temperatures. So that 170 to 180, as opposed to, you know, straight off the boil that we always used to do. We're seeing the things that, where you and I have talked about in the past doing uh, the short, cold, dry hopping yeah. to try and, you know, favor linalool extraction. And now the question is going to be, okay, so if that happens with linalool, are there other things that we need to do to improve the expression of geranol or any of these other hop compounds that we care about? It's going to be, it's going to get very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> it already is complicated and it's going to be getting a lot more complicated. Um, and you know, as the New England IPAs remain popular, one of the things that I've always objected to is the, the hop burn in them. And with this MIBU formula may be a way of finally being able to quantify what those tannins in the hops are going to do to your taste buds and maybe getting people to, to use them in a different way, get to just get that hop burn under control. Who knows? Maybe one of these days I'll actually like a New England IPA. And won't that be a miracle? Yeah. Um, other things that we're seeing, you mentioned the hop burn. We're also seeing people, you know, suddenly going, Oh, wait, hop creep is a thing. <laughs> and having it's, to pay it's not much of a thing, but it can be a thing. You know, it, it, it doesn't happen nearly as often as people think it does, but you know, it does happen. And it's it, again, it's one of those research things that's really good to be aware of. And the other trend I'm also going to say, or the other technique I should say that I, that I think we're going to see more of. Uh, people will remember when I talked to Julian Schrago of Beechwood that he also does things where he tries to make sure that his uh, wort going into the fermenter is actually pre-acidified. So he tries to keep it down around like 5.1 in order to actually allow or well to adjust for the fact that dry hops will raise the pH. And as he thinks it, you know, f makes the beer more flappy. And so he actually makes sure that the beer has extra acid going into it before he gets to the point where he's going to dry hop just to make sure that he actually you know, can maintain that sort of bright character. So he's the one I first heard that technique from, but I'm hearing more and more brewers using that as well. Any other thoughts about hops, Mr. Pacific Northwest? <laughs> Only that I want to go back to hop and brew school this year. So let's get stuff under control. There you go. Go get your shots, people. Uh, moving on from hops, we get into water. And for me, I mean, you think nothing's changed about water, right? I mean, water is water. Water has been the same thing since humanity could write about anything. But in this particular case, for me, at least water has been something that I finally started paying attention to. Um, used to always just kind of not pay a lot of attention to it. I just knew what my water could do. And I focused on strictly removing the chlorine and chloramine from it and maybe a little adjustments here, maybe a little adjustments there, but now actually starting to pay attention to it. Although oddly enough, just last night I had a happy hour with a brewery, a very award-winning brewery, Kern River Brewing Company in Kernville, California. And they actually just use their water plain because they're right there along the, the Kern River and they they just use it plain with the doing no adjustments, even to their award-winning IPAs. So you don't necessarily have to do it, but I finally started paying attention to it. 
And as we've promoted multiple times on the show, uh, brewing water took the scare out of the chemistry for me. And Denny likes to joke that if you try and read the water book, it's a good way to take a nap. And it is. But, it, you know, and that's and that's nothing against, you know, John and Colin. It's it's just it's that sort of a subject using a program like brewing water or, say, the Beersmith water profile, whatever it is that you like and use. To me, it's made it much easier for us to deal with the notion of what's going on with our water without having to worry about necessarily understanding all the different you know, cations and anions and all the interactions that are happening to actually make it happen and get us into the neighborhood of where we need to be. And that combined with the availability of some fairly accurate in-home tests that, that are available to brewers now. So like, for instance, I use the uh, brew lab kit from Lamont just to kind of spot check my water periodically to make sure that it kind of lines up with where my ward labs report is that I base all my water profiles off of. You know, that's, that's just kind of an important thing, you know, that I think is available and relatively inexpensive now. Uh, there are other systems out there as well, but I haven't played with them. But Denny, you have a you have another point about water. I wonder if people are really getting too hung up and overdoing it. Now, don't get me wrong. I think water adjustment is a great thing. I do it for pretty much every batch. But I see a lot of people just freaking out about it and trying to get to the exact part per million. And I see a lot of people trying to adjust their water without really understanding what the goal is and how things work. Uh, a lot of people who are worried simply about pH when there's so much more that is going to make a difference. So again, while I think that dealing with water is a very important thing to do, I think it's even more important that you learn why you're dealing with water and how it all works together. Don't freak out over parts per million. Don't freak out over 10 parts per million. Just Get yourself in the area. I guarantee you're not going to be able to tell the difference between 10 parts per million. Yeah. I mean, what I've discovered is that the least water adjustment is the best water adjustment. You know, do do what you need to do to get into the ballpark. Call it good. Move on. Yeah. And also, I we've talked in the past about how British homebrewers and British brewers favor far more mineral laden water than we do. But I will notice that some of the things that people are doing, particularly around the New England IPAs, where they're trying to bump their chloride levels up, right, to sort of soften the beers and allow more fruit hoppiness to be expressed. I find actually with some of those beers, I'm finding home brewers and professional brewers are actually overdoing the amount of chloride they put into the beer so that the beers become, well, they're not salty in the sense that they taste like saline, but salt heavy. And, you know, it becomes actually kind of chalky and weird. Even even with the other sort of water adjustments that you're doing out there, don't overdo it with the amount of amount of salts that you're actually putting into your beers. Yeah, do, do what you need to do and then get out and go away. Finally, we've talked malt. We've talked hops. We've talked water. Now it's time to talk yeast. I still can't believe you actually use yeast. Well, you know, because without yeast, all we're doing is making sugar water. I think there's been a lot of changes here in, in the yeast world since uh, since we started this show. So the first one, I think, Denny, is the one that you've preached more than anybody else that I know, which is the shake and not stirred starter. It's one of those things that uh, if you have bought into the uh, stir plate conspiracy that uh, just seems so totally counterintuitive and wrong, and then you try it, 
and it works at least as well, if not, and I think better than using the stir plate to make a yeast starter. So uh, that that's one of those that I'm out there preaching all the time. Uh, and then also at the same time, we were just talking a little bit about New England IPAs. Shifting tastes have actually affected what strains are sort of uh, available and, and popular. So used to be, I think, for you and I, you know, in our early days, it was 1056 from white yeast. That was, you know, that and its its cousins from other yeast manufacturers. That's the big one that you used in American craft brewing. And last time I checked, and it's been a, a little bit, but the last time I checked, uh, London 3, 1318, had actually overtaken uh, 1056 in terms of popularity. Yeah, right. And the other thing to keep in mind, too, is that there are a lot more companies selling yeast these days. Uh, you know, four years ago, uh, a lot of these companies weren't there or even just starting. And pretty much the choices were limited to uh, Y yeast, white labs, and dry yeast. And now there are tons and tons of choices, especially for liquid yeast. Our friends at Bootleg, the Yeast Bay guys. Uh, Scarpment, you've got Omega. Uh, I, I swear every time I turn around, there's like another yeast manufacturer. So, <laughs> yeah, right. And also, people have started trying to do more local isolates. Like, for instance, uh, Bootleg Biology and, and Yeast Bay, they both have sort of very local, local vor type uh, captures to bring out some different and unique uh, characteristics. We've also seen dry yeast has sort of matured uh, in, a, in a way. We've been talking for years that dry yeast has a bad reputation because of what people encountered in the early days of homebrewing. Uh, and that's obviously gone away over time. But the other thing that we've also noticed is, that particularly with, like, say, Lalleman, they're offering way more strains now. You can you can find a lot more strains to do a lot more things with than you could five years ago. Yeah, well, I mean, really, look at the Philly Sour they've got out. I mean, that's just insane to think about that as a dry yeast. Actually, the Philly Sour play, plays in perfectly to the understanding of microbiology with yeast, right? So the Philly Sour has some very interesting things happening with it in terms of how they make that actually work. But thanks to the folks over, say, like Milk the Funk, uh, for instance, who we've talked to here on the show before, and the aforementioned Yeast Bay and Bootleg and Escarpment, we have so much more information available to us about yeast just beyond, oh, that's Saccharomyces cerasea, that's an ale yeast, that's a lager yeast. We have yeast genetics that have been done, and so now they've made yeast family trees, and you can tell how closely related different strains are to each other. I was going to say, probably the biggest news in the yeast world, though, is Quike, huh? Yeah, exactly. So one, I, I always kind of wanted to ask Lars the question of, whether or not he could have ever actually pictured that his little foray up into being a the Alan Lomax of farmhouse brewing, if that would have had such a global impact, <laughs> because boy, howdy. Yeah, I know, man. It's like people are just going crazy over that stuff. Uh, they seem to love the fact that you can crank out a beer in a few days, that uh, it works in warm conditions. Actually, it works so much better in warm conditions than cold conditions. I haven't ever really gotten into it because it's such a hassle for me to keep things warm. You, on the other hand, that's your natural environment. Yeah, and it's kind of funny because, again, my garage during the summertime gets up to like 118, 120 area. I don't think Quike will go quite that high. Um, but it is interesting to see people play around this. And I think I would also love to know, you know what these uh, Norwegian farmhouse brewers are thinking about the fact like, People have moved, well, I mean, or at least what American brewers are doing with Quike 
is so far removed from the traditions that that these strains are sort of isolated from. I'd, I'd kind of be curious to see what the what people's reactions are to this. I do feel like there is a very strong connection nowadays between the idea of quike and doing these fast ferments and the hazy IPA trend. Talking with my uh, friend Kip down at uh, LA Ale Works, they have a number of their hazy hazy ish IPAs that they do that they do straight up with, with like a Hornendal, you know, one one of the quike strains because it turns around fast, it throws that haze and and because of some of the characteristics, it actually both helps reinforce the fruit characteristic of the hops while also using some of the hop characters to hide some of the quikiness. Yeah, and see, and, and again, that's that's another reason why I haven't really gotten into it because uh, it seems to have a unique flavor that really isn't compatible with most of the beers I usually make. Right, and given that I play around a lot with, say, Belgian-esque beers and things that already have like high phenol content to them, it's not that unusual to me. I do prefer some of the strains, like say, like Voss, which gives like a um, a sour orange character. I get over something like Hornendal, which actually throws a very aggressive uh, high phenol note to it uh, that can can either be pleasant or cannot be pleasant. So, again, Quike I think is going to be interesting in terms of how it revolutionizes a homebrewing, particularly as some of the yeast manufacturers around here have focused on the idea of how to make a quote-unquote clean quike strain you know where you're seeing things like omega with their lutra uh, for instance or or bootleg biology with their oslo with people trying to see is there a way that we can capture the characteristics of quike that we like the high temperature ferments the fast ferments the aggressive fermentation and high gravity and eliminate some of the things that they don't like say like those phenol characters that do make it harder to work with in some beers. So that would be a place where things are going to develop. Yeah, I'm I'm real curious to see where it's going to go. Obviously, I don't think it's a flash in the pan that's going to go away. It may end up not being quite as uh, uh, ubiquitous as it is now, uh, and it may evolve with new strains coming out that uh, kind of make it so that people are going with a, a few strains of it instead of the wide variety that's out there now. And it could be that I'm just totally wrong about everything. It has been known to happen. It has been known to happen. I freely admit that. And so that's kind of what we're seeing in the world of yeast and microbiology since we started this whole show. I think uh, we need to talk a little bit about process because obviously there have been a lot of process changes over the over this period of time. When you and I first got involved in the hobby, it was all about, you know, making that three vessel system, you know, things that are, you know, you know, make sure you have your HLT and, and, you know, then you need a mash tun that you can water from and then you need a boil kettle. And a lot of that has shifted, not only brewing the bag, you know, as a big popular technique, but even you and I, we've changed out how we brew where you and I were both cooler brewers for the longest time. And now you and I both use these all in one systems and our case is both grandfathers, but the rise of these sort of electric malt pipe slash stainless steel brew in a bag systems, I think has been amazing. Yeah, I mean, they're just everywhere now. There are lots of manufacturers of them. What kills me is when I see people like using one in the house on their wood floor, and I'm thinking, you got to be a whole lot neater than I am because I use one in my garage with a floor drain, and I can't imagine not having that freedom. I know some brewers who use theirs in their kitchens. 
which I mean, okay, kitchen, sure. But at the same time, like I'm looking at that going, that's an awful lot of moisture you're throwing up in the air, but they, they don't seem to have a problem with it. Well, man, I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm a slob and I drip everywhere when I'm brewing. And I, I like to ha- be in a situation where I don't have to worry about doing that. But I do find like, yeah, all these, and I don't care if it's, like I said, we use the grandfathers. And you got what? Like you got the Anvil Foundries out there. You've got the Brazilas, the Robo Brews, the Mash and Boils. There's like at least 15 of these types of systems. And I love the fact that they give you the freedom. Well, I mean, one, they, they fit into a very small space. Let's face it. A grandfather fits into a much tinier footprint than my old three vessel beast. <laughs> you can get about six grandfathers into that footprint. And if you guys haven't seen us do a club talk, uh, my three vessel beast usually fits into the, into the club talk at some point because I talk out in the brewery and uh, I show people that it's now really serving the exact same purpose as everybody's treadmill does. It's a, a stand for holding other things. I want you to know I'm on my treadmill every day. Yes. You're, you're the rare exception. <laughs> That that's been that, but also at the same time, we're also seeing you know people trading more money for control, and you know, like you and I have been playing around with the uh, glycol fermenters uh, that we got from Grandfather, and being able to actually do that control. Uh, the last episode of the show was me talking to Noah from Tilt about why use a Tilt, why have one of those things. People are playing around with that extra money spent, sure, but also getting some extra control in different ways. I have to say that using a glycol chilled conical has really, really improved my brewing life. Uh, as I've mentioned several times, I brew for enjoyment these days, not really the beer. And man, having something like that makes it so easy to use and to clean that I'm just really digging brewing a lot more. We'd be remiss not to mention Lodo as another process change that's happened out there, even though Denny and I are not necessarily huge uh, Lodo fans uh, or Lodo aficionados. And let's, let's, let's tell people what that is. It stands for low dissolved oxygen brewing. Uh, people who go to great lengths, uh, to keep any trace of oxygen out of their beers, uh, from deoxygenating the mash water to using stainless steel instead of copper chillers, things like that. It is not a, huge trend, but it's a trend that is out there and the people who do it are uh, rabidly enthusiastic about it. Yeah, you have some people who are very strict adherents to the idea, and if you're not doing everything exactly the way they, they say you should, then you're not truly doing Leto. But even some of our friends like Martin, uh, for instance, have Pick and chosen certain parts of their uh, of those Lodo practices and, and moved them into their brewing world. So there are some impacts there. There would be a lot of testing that would need to be done in order to convince me that it's a good thing or a good thing to do the whole thing. Yeah, it, it, well, and it's a good thing for some styles and not for others. Uh, our friend Jeff Rankert, who's been on the show several times, uses at least portions of the technique when he makes certain beers, German beers particularly, but when he tried it on British beers, they just didn't have any of the character that they were supposed to have. So I think that what you're going to find is that, you know, Lodo will spread to the areas where it is a benefit and people will realize that maybe it isn't a benefit for everything. Exactly. I did want to go back to one thing that you'd said about the glycol chillers making your life easier because they're easy to clean. The other thing that I've also noticed is uh, that homebrewers are still embracing the notion that the closer they can get to commercial equipment and commercial practices, uh, the better that they are. Yeah. 
And we know how false that is, huh? Uh, the brewer makes the beer. The equipment just help. Equipment can increase your fun. It can help you make better beer. But that doesn't mean that uh, you have to have a conical fermenter, for instance, with all the ports and, and pickup tubes and all that kind of stuff that a commercial brewer has. Remember, you're a home brewer. Different needs, different goals. And I'm particularly looking at you, Triclover Kimes. Those things are a pain. <laughs> Yeah, I know, man. Uh, I have to use one to get the uh, the pressure uh, transfer kit attached to my uh, grandfather conical. And, you know, one of those on there, it's like, okay, that's all I want to deal with. Yep, exactly. Now, some things have not changed in the past four years of us doing this show. Uh, one is that styles are still evolving. Uh, when we started doing the show, Hazy IPA was a thing-ish. But since then, it's obviously come to dominate to the fact that nowadays when I order an IPA or I buy an IPA, I'm never quite certain what I'm going to get anymore. I mean, you know, again, for a while there, four years ago when we started, it was the hot new thing. It was about all the IPAs that you could find were going to be New England hazy IPAs. And now it's kind of started to shift back around and the the West Coast style IPA is starting to get some love again. Yay. But we're also seeing things like new loggers are appearing all the time. I uh, yeah. like, like here, I mean, what, I mean, up, up around your neck of the woods, you've got uh, Frim and you, or Freem and you've got, uh, Heater Allen. Oh man, I just, I had a Vienna lager from Freem yesterday and I bought it because there's so much debate about what a Vienna lager should be. They're so hard to find. Let me tell you. After having a Freem Vienna Lager, I firmly believe that's what Vienna Lager should be. It was fantastic. And damn it, if it's not what Vienna Lager is, it's what Vienna Lager should be. It should be. That's right. But yeah, it's like you say, uh, we are seeing a real rise of lagers uh, in in the commercial world and even in the homebrewing world because, uh, you know, having things like temperature-controlled fermenters makes it way easier to do a lager. Yes, exactly. The other, uh, some couple of other things that uh, haven't changed over the time that we've been doing this show. I still constantly see the question online. Hey, can I make my homebrew and sell it to my local bar? Because they really like it. Yeah. Or, or can I sell it to my buddies? That one still happens. No, don't do that. Uh, I love how that, uh, that conversation always goes with people like, uh, no, there's a whole bunch of hoops you got to jump through, buddy. Well, and, and then, and then there's always the, the people saying, Oh, just go ahead and do it. Nobody will, will ever know and you'll be okay. And it's like, yeah, maybe, maybe not. Also, one last thing that has definitely not changed in the past four years doing the show, I still can't stand the sound of my voice. <laughs> now, see, I've heard a number of people say you sound like you, you have like an FM voice. To, to a certain degree, that's true. I have a cartoon character voice. Oh, see, I always think I sound like a rabid squirrel on cappuccino. Well, only only when you get really going and take off and you're going 3,000 words a minute, you know. Uh, but uh, your vocal quality is actually quite pleasant and soothing. Whereas, on the other hand, I sound like I came out of a Donald Duck cartoon. Well, the, the real model is I've just always tried to sound like I'm in one of those uh, Mr. Microphone ads. And there you go. <laughs> if, you know what, if you know what I'm talking about, guess what? You're old. <laughs> oh i'm older than that man i <laughs> know uh, all right well denny anything else that you feel is important that we talk about that 
has changed or hasn't changed in the past four years? You know, I think that we've covered all the all the major things there, and I'm sure that the, after we get done, we'll think of other things. Uh, it, why don't you guys let us know if there's anything that we haven't covered that you think has uh, gone through a major change in the last four years, uh, either f- for the better or for the worse. Right in, podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Let us know what we missed, what you think should be on our list. All right, and thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed this little look back at what's changed in the past 100 episodes of the show. Are we going to make it another 100? I thought you were going to say 100 years. Thank God. <laughs> Are we going to make another 100? Who knows? Stick around and find out. And by the way, very, very importantly, if there's something that you feel like we should discuss here on the show or somebody that we should talk to, let us know. And that's how we always do this. It's remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at exp brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Click the AHA, Amazon, Brewers, Friends, or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... World Central Kitchen, an organization uh, that helps feed people in need in your town. Uh, run by Chef Jose Andres. Great organization. Check them out on the web. Go to our website, click on the Patreon link, and... Toss us some money to toss to them. Until next time, remember to always brew wacky. Or brew experimentally. And the brew is out there for 100 episodes. 